Hello and welcome to the Lancet Psychiatry Podcast. I'm Niall Boyce, the editor. Today, we're going to be talking about a subject which crosses the boundaries of the health system and the criminal justice system. It's much misunderstood, and although it's been recognized and described in various forms over many years, it's only with the rise of modern experimental methods that we're beginning to understand it. The condition is psychopathic personality disorder, and I'm joined today by a forensic psychiatrist whose team has just published a research paper in The Lancet Psychiatry. Welcome to the podcast, Nigel. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? I'm Nigel Blackwood. I'm a clinical academic in forensic psychiatry at King's College London. And as a forensic psychiatrist, I'm particularly interested in the interface between mental illness and crime. And we work to understand the role that mental illness plays in offending behaviours. And we work in all parts of the criminal justice system, from police stations, prison, probation services, and also ensure that the most severely mentally ill people come out of the criminal justice system and are treated in secure psychiatric care. Okay. Now, your paper is about individuals with diagnoses of uh, antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy. Uh, these are terms which are bandied around a lot in the media. I think lots of people will think of, say, Hervey Cleckley's uh, Mask of Sanity, a very famous publication uh, on the subject. Uh, but I think it would, would help if you could define these terms now to know what we're talking about. What is antisocial personality disorder and, and what is psychopathy? I think if we start out as widely as possible and think first of all about that contentious phrase personality disorder, psychiatrists and psychologists just use it to describe people with a chronic disturbance in their relationships with themselves and with others which can be associated with distress and impairments in their social performance and broadly speaking there's three clusters of personality disorders, there's one that's quite closely associated with psychotic disorders schizoid and schizotypal personality disorders. There's another cluster associated more with uh, depression, so the anxious and dependent group. And then the group I'm most interested in are the noisy ones who meet criteria for things like antisocial personality disorder or borderline personality disorder. By antisocial personality disorder, I mean a, a group of people who are antisocial and aggressive across their lifespan. They make poor decisions, they're impulsive, they enjoy risk-taking behaviours. As children, they might be diagnosed with conduct disorder, and then in adulthood, they meet criteria for antisocial personality disorder. And within that group, we think there are two important groups to consider. One is the group who have antisocial personality disorder but do not have psychopathy, and then there's the group who have antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy. So if we think of the first group, uh, these people are characterized by their impulsivity and risk-taking, and particularly by their acts of reactive aggression. So in sort of folk wisdom terms, we think of these people as being particularly hot-headed. And then there's a subgroup who, as well as having the antisocial behaviours across the lifespan, also have particular difficulties with their personality, things that we call deficient affective experience. So they're particularly callous, they lack empathy, they're rather grandiose about their own abilities, and they enjoy manipulating others. And they use aggression in a, a different way. They do engage in acts of reactive aggression, but they also much more use what we call instrumental aggression. So aggression to get things that they want. And again, in the folk wisdom, we might think of these people as being particularly cold-hearted and rather ruthless. Okay. And one thing which I think we need to make clear before we go any further is this common error that you see of confusing psychopathic with, with psychotic. They're quite 
different things, although they sound a bit similar. Yes, so uh, psychopathic we think of being a personality disorder, whereas psychotic refers to people with major mental illnesses like schizophrenia or bipolar affective disorder. And the latter group have more prominent reality distortions, so they hear voices, they think their thoughts are being interfered with, their body might be under the control of an outside force, their thoughts might be very disorganised. So that's quite a different picture to those with problems with their personality function. Okay. So the kinds of individuals we're talking about in this study, people with antisocial disorder uh, with or, or without psychopathy, what kinds of problems do they have in their lives? What problems are they associated with in other people's lives and in society in general? So most violent crimes in our society are committed by this group of men, the broad antisocial group. As I mentioned, they're impulsive, they take risks, they're aggressive. So as children, they might be the children who are bullying in class, who are stealing from their peers, who are using weapons, who start using substances at an earlier age, uh, start being sexually at an earlier age, run away from home, don't respond well to parent injunctions to stay at home at night, etc. And uh, a group of these grow up to be antisocial adults and spend a lot of their time in prison and probation settings. So about half of the adult prison population in England and Wales meet criteria for antisocial personality disorder, and about a third of those, again, meet that additional diagnosis of psychopathy. Okay, so this is a serious problem. It's a big problem. It's a challenge for uh, forensic mental health services, criminal justice systems. What management options are available at the moment, and, and how well do they work? So if we think of this as a lifespan persistent disorder, in childhood, a subgroup of those with conduct disorder also have callous and emotional traits. So these are the kids we think grow up to be adult psychopaths. For the child, um, the major uh, treatment option available is parent training programs, which work with the parents to try and make sure that there's a consistent approach to good and bad behaviours, that good behaviour is rewarded, that bad behaviour is consistently punished. And we know from studies that these have important long-term effects on reducing antisocial behaviour and improving parent-child relationships over 10-year follow-up periods. Coming into adulthood, the major treatment programme in prison settings is a variant of something called reasoning and rehabilitation, where you're trying to look in group work with the individuals at better ways of solving problems, about controlling their impulses, about giving themselves a chance to be reflective and to be more pro-social. And these two are associated with a reduction in recidivism of about 14% for those who complete such programmes. Okay, so this kind of leads us on to your Lancet Psychiatry paper, which is about punishment and psychopathy associated with reinforcement learning. And uh, you used functional MRI uh, for this study. Uh, your study group, I think, was violent male offenders with antisocial personality disorder. And this paper was looking at one particular area of cognitive function, that is adaptive decision-making, uh, guided by the weighing up of reward and punishment information. Now, could you uh, tell me a bit about this and why you chose this specific area? So we think that there are two core problems in the child with conduct disorder and callous and emotional traits and in the antisocial adult with psychopathy. And these are in two broad areas. The first is in their ability to empathise in an emotional sense with others. And the second is in the way in which they use emotional learning to make decisions. So in the empathic processing, they struggle to 
uh, recognize fear and sadness cues in others' faces or their vocal expressions or their body postures. That's in the children and the adults. And in the decision-making domain, um, you and I have to make decisions adaptively. And in part, we base that on the extent to which things have been rewarded in the past or punished in the past. You can remember the way your uh, learning was shaped in your childhood in those domains. And we know that the callous and emotional child and the psychopathic adult have impaired use of punishment information. So they don't do so well in the parent training programs. They don't do so well in reasoning and rehabilitation programs in prison. And they seem to be what's called reward dominant. So they're particularly sensitive to reward and don't use punishment to change their behavior. We can see that in paper and pencil tasks like passive avoidance tasks or aversive conditioning or in the one we chose to use in the scanner, reinforcement learning. Okay, so from the fact that you're using a scanner, it tells me that this decision making involves uh, specific regions of the brain. Yes, so the task that uh, we're going to talk about, a reinforcement learning task, looks at the way in which individuals process reward or punishment within the scanner. And we're particularly interested in that moment when something that was previously rewarded is now punished. And that should change your behavior to realize that you're now making a series of mistakes and change your behavior so that you become rewarded again. So in that set of decisions, that's clearly a complex decision to make. You have to allocate your attention. You have to assess conflicting responses. You have to modulate your response. And these all involve frontal lobe areas like the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, the ventrolateral prefrontal cortex. But the areas that we're particularly interested in in our group is the areas that track that change in reinforcement. So something that was previously rewarded is now punished. And that's areas like the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, the posterior cingulate, and the dorsal caudate. So reduced activation in these areas in normal subjects signals that you're making an error and that you've got to change your responding. So adapt your behavior now. Okay. And so you, you looked at three groups in this study. Is that correct? That's right. We went into probation services in London to identify a group of violent offenders. And we also looked for a group of non-offenders in the community. We made sure that they didn't have major mental illness, like schizophrenia or bipolar affective disorder, that they met criteria for antisocial personality disorder. And then we established whether they did or did not have additional diagnoses of psychopathy. So you end up with three groups, antisocial personality disorder plus psychopathy, antisocial personality disorder without psychopathy, and a non-offender group. Okay, so you got these individuals into an fMRI scanner. You asked them to carry out a task of the nature that you've described. That's right, so it's a response reversal task in which the individuals in the scanner have to learn during the acquisition phase that they've got to decide between one of two objects, so line drawings of animal or furniture, which of these is associated with reward and they gradually work out which of these is associated with the reward and then stick with that decision. And then at a moment unbeknownst to them, you go into the reversal phase where what was previously rewarded is now punished. And you're really interested in that moment when something that was previously rewarded is punished. And you look specifically at that moment and compare that moment with all the other periods where they're quite happily going on saying, yes, I know that this is rewarded. Okay, and what did you find? 
So in behavioural terms, the groups uh, mastered the task, uh, they made similar amounts of errors, they took similar amounts of time to make their decisions, so those aren't confounds in our results. But the absolutely key result, I think, for me was to show that the antisocial personality disordered individuals with psychopathy showed a markedly different response at that point at which something that was previously awarded is now punished. So they showed increased activation in areas called the posterior cingulate and the anterior insula at that moment. And that's similar to what we found in a group of conduct disordered children with callous and emotional traits who sh also showed increased activation of the ventromedial prefrontal cortex in response to these punished errors. And this wasn't related to the number of antisocial personality disorder symptoms. It was related to their PCLR score, so their psychopathy checklist score. Okay, so this is a small study. It's quite early on in this particular story, but um, I wonder if you could explain to our listeners what conclusions you drew from this and, and further down the line what the implications of your finding might be. I think there's two main things that it meant to us. The first is that the psychopathic group do not simply show reduced neural sensitivity to punishment. There's a clearly altered organisation of the information processing system that's responsible for reversal learning and for making adaptive decisions. And we have a similar story between the adult psychopaths and the children with callous unemotional traits. So this is the first study to show this difference in functional terms between the antisocial personality disorder adults with and without psychopathy. In childhood diagnostic schemes, they've recognised that difference and we now have a subgroup of conduct disorder who have what's called limited prosocial emotions. But in adulthood, these antisocial men are still all lumped together as one group. And I think that's wrong. And that means that in treatment terms, they also are all exposed to similar treatments, like a kind of one-size-fits-all approach. Okay. And um, this leads us on to, I suppose, a more philosophical question um, to end the podcast with, which is going beyond these data and, and to talk more generally about this whole issue of psychopathy. What does it mean in terms of personal choice, culpability, responsibility for crimes? How do you think the justice system should manage these individuals? What's the role of psychiatrists, for example? What's the role of mental health law? I think the first thing to say is that we're steadily accruing information that uh, callous unemotional traits in childhood and psychopathy in adulthood is increasingly being shown to be a neurodevelopmental disorder with clear structural and functional differences between these groups. So then the question is, should management in the criminal justice system change? If we think about responsibility, uh, let's think about the most serious crime that these people may commit, like murder. So in our own, to show diminished responsibility, to therefore have a conviction of manslaughter rather than murder, and therefore have an effect on your sentencing. You have to demonstrate to the court that there was abnormality of mental function arising from a recognised medical condition which substantially impaired their ability to understand the nature of their conduct, to form a rational judgment, or to exercise self-control. Now, at the moment, um, I am reasonably can convince a court and a jury that somebody with a psychotic illness, like schizophrenia, who murders somebody in the middle of a psychotic episode, I can persuade them that there is that abnormality of mental functioning, that they couldn't understand the nature of their conduct, that they couldn't form a rational judgment at that time. And as I mentioned, juries 
are typically persuaded by that and that means that that psychotic individual goes into secure psychiatric care rather than into prison. Now, although I can make a similar argument in psychopathic adults and I can draw on the sort of uh, research that we're talking about today and I can say that they don't necessarily fully understand the nature of their conduct in the way that you or I do or form a rational judgment on the basis of those problems with empathy and decision making. Nevertheless, uh, at the moment, this is viewed as a static deficit. It's not amenable to change. So there isn't the, the drug treatments that are available for psychosis for psychopaths. There's a good degree of therapeutic pessimism about their treatment, which I don't think is necessarily justified. And you're talking typically about deeply unsympathetic crimes. So it remains difficult to persuade a jury that uh, a murder charge should ultimately result in a manslaughter conviction. But I am sanguine about the impact that neuroscience can make on decision-making in the courtroom. You only have to look at uh, American data to show how much our understanding of the adolescent brain and the way in which it develops across time has affected um, the way in which adolescents are treated in court. So they're no longer subject to the death sentence. They're no longer subject to life without parole, less than 18. So that's changed the result of accruing neuroscientific data. And we know again in the States that using brain data like the stuff we've been talking about today is important in mitigating against, for example, the death penalty. So I think these things will change and we're at the beginning of a very interesting story about thinking about how psychopathy impacts upon responsibility. Okay, so thank you very much, Nigel. That uh, paper and an accompanying comment, uh, they're both available to read online and in print. Uh, many thanks uh, to you as the listener for downloading this podcast, and I hope that you will join us again next time. Goodbye. <laughs>